please turn also to the New Testament, to the book of John. The text for this morning is John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30. Begin reading from John chapter 10, verse 22 through verse 30. This is God's holy word. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us our Lord Jesus, who indeed is the good shepherd. Father, we thank you for your mighty provision, that he saves his people by a great deliverance. He saves us by a great deliverance. Father, we pray and thanks that salvation in your view, is as good as done. Oftentimes, Father, we have so many unknowns, so many doubts, so many fears, so many pains, and yet, Father, you are with us. You have given us a helper in the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, his people. Father, we pray, even as we labor and fight through this Christian life, we pray that your people might be reminded that our Lord Jesus is already victorious. We thank you, Father, that you are one who grants encouragement to your people, a much-needed encouragement. May we labor on, may we trust in you, may we believe you at your word, may we obey you, even as you have called us to. And Father, we pray that your word would go forth the power of the gospel, would build your people up, would strengthen and nourish us, your people. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Can you imagine for a moment what it is like for someone who is trying to obtain tenureship? Normally we think about a professor. A professor, he, he or she would graduate from graduate school with a PhD, maybe do a postdoc, and then they'd uh, become an assistant professor. And supposedly they have somewhere, like, was it about seven years? Um, If it's a research university, then they would have to do several things. They'd have to uh, do research, right? And they'd have have to have grad students who who help him do that research. And he'd have to teach well at, at the university. And seven years he has to prove himself. And for whatever reason, if the, uh, I, I've heard down to the undergraduates to say, hey, you didn't give me a high enough grade. You don't give me a high enough grade, then I'm not going to give you a good review. And, and, and you think about how, how painful that situation would be. 
right, where he's, he's at the mercy of these undergraduates. And then one day he gets tenure, and then, oh, I'm safe. And life goes on for him, because he's no longer under that scrutiny of doubt and of fear. Can you identify a bit with that assistant professor? Have you thought about it's the people, the Christians, who get to heaven that somehow they are secure. And that until we get there, it's, not, it's as if we don't have tenureship. It's as if we're, our security is different from their security. You have to realize the security of Christians, true Christians who are in Christ, is no different here in this world than the Christian who is in heaven. Do you understand that? Their difference is a matter of happiness. Their difference is a matter of purity, that, that they will sin no more. But regarding security, there is no difference between those of you who are trusting in Christ here and now today in this world, despite all the opposition, despite all the temptations, despite all the fears, all the doubts. Your security in Jesus Christ is no less secure than those who have already passed on to glory. It's going to take a while for that to sink in. Here, you think about this book of John. This book of John, it's a separate gospel in the sense that, uh, sorry, not gospels and good news, separate uh, of the four gospels, three of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are very much the same. But then John's gospel seems to be somewhat different. It's set apart in, in that it's presenting the same Jesus, it's presenting the same good news, but as a writing it seems distinct in so many ways. Here, it's not as if John was lacking in an intelligence, but granted he wasn't as educated of a man as, as the Apostle Paul, but there's a certain depth that he has in his writings. And he presents that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He begins it as if it's a parallel account to Genesis. In the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. And, and then he talks about all of these matters, the, the I Am statements. That One of the distinctions about uh, the Gospel of John is that he has all of these I Am statements from Jesus. And in this John chapter 10, we have two of them. Jesus says that he is the door. He also says that he is the good shepherd. And the passage that we have here, John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30, it's not as if he says all that much different that he covered in chapter 10. He's already said those things earlier about uh, Jesus being the good shepherd, that the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He's already said these things to, these, to, to the Jewish leaders here. He's reiterating. He's, he's uh, summarizing for them. And... What we ought to gather from this passage is this. That the perseverance of the saints consists of your duty to persist in faith and obedience predicated upon God's promise to preserve you. Perseverance of the saints consists of your duty to persist in faith and obedience predicated upon God's promise to preserve you. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the Christian's duty to persevere in verses 26 and 27. And second, God's role to preserve in verses 28 to 30. 
So the first point, Christian's duty to persevere. Verses 26 and 27. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Here, we have the context of this dispute. Is that Jesus is giving his I am statements. And I I hope you can see that in, in Greek... When he's speaking to them, or, or in Aramaic, whatever, whatever the, the language is, that when he says the I am, that from that we're supposed to think back to God's revelation of himself when Moses, at the burning bush, was confused, thinking, okay, you've asked me to go to your people and take them out of slavery, and and I don't even know your name. And and God's answer was, tell him that I am has sent you. And he says, what do you mean by that? And and God's revealing himself as as he's not the God who who was, he's the everlasting God. That uh, we think about people, people... In some cultures uh, who use English, but in a different way than us, that they often speak about someone as no more. Oh, he is no more. It means it's a euphemism for he is dead. Right? So he is no more. But God is one who always is. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. That Jesus, when he says that, I am the door, each time he's saying that, right? And and at one point, Jesus actually says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone him because they understood what he was saying. He's claiming to be God in those statements. The repetitions of the I am. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. And in Jesus, in talking to these leaders, when he says that all who came before me were thieves and robbers, what he's actually saying, he's pointing a finger at them, saying that you guys are hirelings. You guys look out for yourselves. He's, he's alluding to Ezekiel 34 about the false shepherds. And here Jesus is saying that he has come and that he is the true shepherd of the sheep. Here in this passage that we have, essentially is a summary of this John chapter 10. And he begins by saying, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He's already saying to these Jewish leaders, you guys are on the outside. I have a flock. These are my sheep. You're not one of them. We have a description of the flock. And this description of the flock... It's really a description about what God calls us to, to persevere. So the contrast there, in verse 26 to verse 27, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders saying, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And then the contrast, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So what we ought to understand is there's there's that explanation about what it means to believe. But you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So this description about believing, this is part of persevering, is that you and I might continue in the faith. When you think about those uh, who, who have left 
those who have departed. You know, there were, there were those who were so excited about the faith, and, and maybe this is why there's such a challenge regarding the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, is that people are saying, hey, but I've known people, family members, close friends, and they were followers of Jesus Christ. They love the Lord. And now they're no longer with the Lord. So then the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is false. Can you understand at least their line of thinking? That the part, that, the part that's wrong is actually our judgment about those people. Right? It's just, just like certain people say, uh, love is love. Meaning, hey, what I've identified there is actually love. Well, this person loves that person. When... In reality, we can't judge that so clearly. We can't judge the genuineness of a person's heart. So it's not that the doctrine is false. The doctrine is true because God says it's true. Even in this passage here, He says it's true. When, when Jesus says that I give them eternal life and they will never perish, no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's the truth of the perseverance of the saints. To doubt it is to doubt Jesus and His Word. And if Jesus is wrong here, He's wrong everywhere. If He's false here, He's false everywhere. So we cannot say, because I've read this person's heart perfectly, which none of us can do. We can't read our own hearts perfectly. How can we read someone else's heart? So that doctrine cannot be judged false by our misinterpretation of someone else's heart. And so you ask... Why is this <clears throat> believing Jesus at His word so difficult? Well, it's so difficult because we're still trying to judge by the eyes of flesh. We're still trying to judge by the ears that hear the message of the world. Believing Jesus at His word is very, very easy. He said it this simply. He talked about being like a child. If a man is going to be saved, he must believe the promises that I've given him as a child receives it. It's so simple, but it's so difficult. <clears throat> Here is the challenge. Here's the challenge from the world. Is that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And... <clears throat> there's something that I would call encroachment. What the world does is it encroaches. You think about how, <clears throat> imagine those of you who have lived in the Twin Cities for a long time, whether it be seven years or they've been uh, 80 years, there's a matter of encroachment. That's the spread, the urban spread. And, and in many ways, that's the way that the world works, similar to that uh, urban spread and the world's domain seems to seems to increase and that the domain of Jesus seems to decrease and you look at the sphere of politics it encroaches onto that sphere of truth and of ethics and here the world's views of politics it claims a monopoly when Politics says when we address anything, there cannot be, there, there may not be any question to what we say. And, and then they 
They come into the church and then they tell you, you know what, once we addressed it, it becomes a gray area. There's no longer any truth that can be spoken to that subject. So we have, we have faithful Christians who disagree on the matter and you can take either view. How often do you hear this? And anytime Paul comes in, he says, hey, we're going to spread out here. So, and, and then you look at Jesus' fear. He's like, Jesus addressed these truths and, and we put these truths in these, into these little categories that we put onto our mantelpieces. Oh yeah, once, once or twice a year, I, I think about what Jesus has said. Oh yeah. And you can even pick up Time Magazine or, or, or Newsweek or U.S. News and World Report. Just think about, when, when you get to that time about Easter, they're going to ask that same question. Did Jesus, he, did He rise? In there? Oh, maybe He did. Maybe He did. We don't know, right? And the same questions come up, right? And, and they're the calling the question, did it really happen? And it's as if, if, if Jesus, that's the only thing that Jesus addresses, the matter of the resurrection. No, He addresses far more than that. He addresses a lot more than that. And for Christians, the challenge is that here, the world says, hey, everything that we tend to address, it becomes, it becomes a neutral zone for you. Meaning there's no right and wrong anymore. There's no absoluteness. <clears throat> I think about what happened in Romania with the example of Richard Wormbrandt. He saw it. He saw it. You have the Russians come in. Ah, you're one of our little colonies. We'll take care of you, right? And and some of you are going to say, Frank, you don't you don't understand communism. You don't know what communism is. Hey, hold on. It's not communism we're so concerned about. It's actually totalitarianism, right? So they come in, they take over Romania, and what do they do with the churches? Ah, we're your friends. Come on over here. Whatever whatever you need, we'll provide for you. You need money, we'll give you money, right? Just. Bow the knee to our God with us. We will serve Him together. We will bow the knee and serve together. Now you get in line. You're under our control. And then you have this two levels of the church. Right? Those who say, we will bow the knee. Whatever message you want, we will, we will preach it from this pulpit. Right? We will do whatever you say. Just let us keep our money. Let us keep, uh, let us keep our privilege and our power. What was, what was Richard's message to his wife? Hey, uh, things are going to get incredibly difficult here, right? You might not see me much more. And she said, hey, I didn't marry a coward. So she was saying, you do what you need to do, right? You believe what the Lord has told you. And don't bow the knee to any false god. But you realize, when the false god comes, it's not going to have this big sign there that says idolatry and false god, right? They're going to come in and they're going to tell you, hey, you need to believe this way. And if you don't, we're going to shame you for not believing it. Here recently, I've spoken to two ministers. One I met recently and one I've known for many, many years. He took a new call from California, moved to to there, to Wisconsin and and, uh, you know, both of them address this matter to me. Reading the scriptures in the church, preaching about God's word. Very interesting that both of them said, anytime they read scriptures regarding matters of, uh, you know, contemporary issues of what is a valid lifestyle, specifically that of homosexuality, 
they both got emailed by members of the congregation saying, you're out of line. We're rebuking you, Pastor, for what you've said. How dare you contradict the world? This is the world, and you have no right to contradict what we've been taught from the world. Oh, wow. Is that true? So they're saying, hey, you pastor must get in line. You must bow the knee. Very interesting how that happens. Why is it? Why is it that it's the word of God that comes into question? That what the world says, we accept with open arms. And, and then we use that truth, that truth, then to interpret our Bibles. As, as if somehow the Bible's domain becomes smaller and smaller. When Jesus is the one who says that every thought should be taken captive and brought into submission to the obedience of Christ. It's the other way around. It's the other way around. May, may you, in your submission to God's word and your belief upon it, challenge the teachings of the world. Don't let the message of the world bring you to challenge and to question the teachings of God. This is the believing Jesus at His word. There's apparently nothing difficult about it. If we're not functioning in this world, if we're not loving the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you think that our society would be any different than the one that Richard Warmbrand knew? Why do you think somehow the challenge to truth, the opposition of the world, would come any differently than that? I don't expect to be any different. That Satan's going to come in with the shame factor. Oh, shame on you. You're going to be rejected. You'll lose your job. You're going to go hungry if you remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And you can always say, you know, hey, I, I'm just trying to put food on my table. Right? That, that's, that's, your, that's your excuse for why you have to compromise. Because we're not going to call it compromise at all. We're just going to call it, this is surviving in the world. So he even provides you this convenient way to get out of it. Here, this matter of hearing the voice of Jesus. So that's believing. Believing Jesus Christ means you hear the voice of Jesus. John 8, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. John 8, 47. This is Jesus speaking to, to the Jewish leaders. He's saying that you don't even have the ability to hear the words of God. Because you're not of Him. And I ask you, people of God... Can you hear the voice of Jesus? Are you able to hear Him speaking in His Word? Does He speak authoritatively? Satan will attack two areas. He'll attack God's authority. He'll attack God's authority. Hey, He has no authority to address that in your life. Because you're your own person. You have feelings. You have your own opinions. Then he, attra he attacks the clarity. Hey, hey, 
Faithful Christians throughout history have disagreed on this. See, that's, that's, that's the cue that you know it's an attack from Satan about the clarity of God's word. That's when you know, hey, he's attacking the clarity. Because he's saying, faithful Christians throughout history have disagreed on this. But are you hearing God? Is it clear? God's word is fundamentally clear. Jesus also says that, and I know them. So my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Here, this knowledge is not knowing a fact. This knowledge is an infant knowledge. In the beginning, the description about Adam and Eve is that Adam knew his wife Eve. There was an intimate knowledge there. And so also, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be come conform to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that God knows his people. God knows his people. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus warned. Jesus warned. Those who claim, Lord, Lord, didn't we do your will? Do we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? What was Jesus' statement to them? I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is, is Jesus saying there's something he doesn't know? Hey, I don't know who those people are. Hey, I meet people I don't know all the time. Hey, what's your name? Right? And then with old age, you just start to forget names. You start to forget people, and you start to meet new people all the time. No, no, no. This is no limitation of Jesus. It's not that he didn't know who they were. He knew their names. He knew everything about them. But he's saying, I never knew you. There was no intimate knowledge of them. They're not of his sheep. They're not of his flock. He's saying they're outside. And then this matter of, and they follow me. Have you ever got into a, a debate with someone and you're talking and his response or her response is, I'm hearing you. Okay? You ever hear that one? I, I'm hearing you. Right? What, what does that mean? What does that mean? What they're saying is, hey, it's not that you're mumbling. It's not that I can't understand you. Say, I've, I've heard you. There's no question about being audible. Right? I've heard you. And, in fact, I've even understood you. So to say, I, I hear you, I, I, I'm hearing you, is they, they understand you too, but they don't what? They don't agree with you. That's what they're saying. I'm hearing you. But you realize here, so that it might be emphatically clear, that it's not a matter of just hearing the words of Jesus. It's about following him. It's about obeying him. So we can't say to Jesus, hey... We're, we're hearing you. No, it's not those who are the hearers of the law. It's the doers of the law. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In Romans chapter 2, that was Paul's argument to the Jews. Hey, you, you boast you have the law. Of course, you, you hear it, right? You read it all the time. And you read it in the worship in your synagogues. But he's saying, are you actually obeying it? And he's saying, that's really the test. So also for you and for me, that's really the test. Are we obeying 
our Lord Jesus? Are we following Jesus Christ? You will know God's people by their fruit. And so I ask you, people of God, where are you in this matter of perseverance? Are you fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil? And I'm not saying fighting against the world, meaning you know some kind of jihad against them, and some kind of taking up arms. No, 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 not, not, not that at all. Are you fighting against the influence, the standards, the values, the ethics of the world? Fighting against your own flesh here. Your goal, every Christian's goal, should be to finish the race well. Finish the race well. Think about this order of salvation and how perseverance relates to the other things we've learned about earlier. We see in our catechism or our confession, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit. So here we're seeing that our our confession relates perseverance of the saints to effectual calling. Right? And I mentioned that, that there's no separate category for regeneration, but of course it has to it has to be related to regeneration. That effectual calling with regeneration, how else will someone have a new nature? How else will they believe unless they've been given a new heart to believe? So if we're gonna persevere in the faith, persevere in obedience, that there must have been regeneration. And so also there, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That this perseverance is the completion of what God has started. And what we ought to understand is that God begins the work. God finishes the work. It's not as if we are are saved, we're brought into the kingdom by God's grace, and that we have to persevere by works. No. From beginning to end, salvation is a gift of God. Yet, in this sanctification, in this perseverance, that man must play a part. Even in the matter of conversion, that man must believe, that that God commands that we would believe and repent. And that we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to embrace the promises of the gospel. We're supposed to believe them as our own. That there is some response, that there is some duty upon us. And this doctrine of perseverance is continuing on. It's continuing in sanctification. That we who have been adopted, that we've been given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that this Spirit is at work in you and in me. And so we look forward to one day we will be glorified. We continue to persevere. We fight the good fight. Now, this perseverance of the saints, what it is not. What it is not, it is not a promise that everyone who ever professed faith will be saved. It's not the promise that everyone who has prayed the prayer, right? You think about, you heard that statement, hey, I prayed the prayer, right? Hey, just because you prayed some prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, right? Just because uh, when that minister was making an altar call and you raised your hand, right? You raised your hand or you, you came forward. It doesn't mean that everyone who has done that will be saved. It's not saying that at all. 
right? And, and again, we, we come to that difficulty of, wait a minute, but I knew this person, this, this sister or this friend of mine who was very faithful and now is no longer walking with the Lord. No, it's not saying that everyone who is professed faith thinks. Everyone who is a true believer, everyone who is elect, will be saved. And, and then the questions start coming. Right, well, what about these passages, these certain passages, right? Hebrews 6 and a few others, right? And, and we can address that perhaps in our discussion time. But we ought, what we ought to understand is that there is apostasy. Apostasy is real, right? No one, no one should say, hey, I'm sure I'm elect. If, if they're walking in complete disobedience to God, that person is deceiving themselves, right? That's exactly as James said. Hearers only who delude themselves. But there is something in the scriptures that tells us it's important that we finish well. First John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not, that they all are not of us. Meaning that if you want assurance... There has to be a continuing on in the faith, a continuing on in obedience. That's one of the first things that God does to His beloved children when they disobey, is He starts to, starts to withdraw this assurance. We, we have a sense of that, even as you, you read Psalm 51, as David speaks about what was in his heart regarding the time of his disobedience. It's like God withdrew that favor, He withdrew that assurance. And that's part of that wake-up call, right? That's, that's the, the morning alarm clock that wakes up. Hey, where are you? Where are you? So this is the first point, the Christian's duty to persevere. We have also the second point, God's role to preserve in verses 28 to 30. <clears throat> I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the elect persevere only because God is preserving. And here in this passage, Jesus says He's doing the preserving. He also says the Father is doing the preserving. And we're going to add to that, the Holy Spirit does the preserving too. That all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the preserving of God's people. Here, Jesus, Jesus' role in your perseverance. In verse 28, I give them eternal life. How clear is that? I give them eternal life. So, eternal life has been coupled with the forgiveness of sins. Right? So, uh, what's the contrast to eternal life? Is eternal damnation. Right? So, I give them eternal life as I saying, I give them a ticket to heaven. I give them access to heaven. I give them access to my kingdom. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 This is eternal life. That Jesus gives His people eternal life. 
This means that He freely forgives sins for those who repent and believe upon His promises that there is the forgiveness of sins for you. And we might ask, Lord Jesus, what have you given me? And His answer is, I give you eternal life. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Well, here Jesus says, I give you eternal life. He also says, and they will never perish. And they will never perish. John 6, 39-40 And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Here, Jesus says, that God is the one who says, hey, these are yours. Don't lose any of them. And Jesus says, yes, I will lose none of them. Not one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Here, I ask you, what type of Savior would Jesus be if, if he lost one of his sheep? Could you imagine, <clears throat> let's say you needed a job, and uh, you found a job working in a, in a preschool or a daycare, and the, uh, the head daycare person said, okay, this is your assignment, you have a dozen children to watch over. These are their names. Today, I check into you 12 children, and in the afternoon when your shift is done, you check 12 of them back. And then, let's say you returned, okay, with only 11. And the person asks you, I checked in 12 to you, why do you only have 11? I, I don't know. Hey, I watched all of them. No, apparently not, because you have one missing. I would say, hey, you're, you're probably going to be in some trouble, especially if you don't know when that 12th one went missing. Your job would be in question. You probably won't be paid your day's wage. Uh, here, same thing. Jesus, if He's the Savior, which He is, how can it be that He could lose even one? Because if you lost one, you could lose two, or ten, or whatever number. But Jesus is one who gives His people eternal life, and they will never perish. These are promises. These are statements that He's making. And he uses this metaphor. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You ever play that game with little kids? If you have like a marble or, or a ball and you, you hold it in your hand and they come and they try to pry your fingers open, right? I used to play that when I was a kid with, with bigger kids, right? Or my parents. But here, Jesus is saying, no one can snatch this person out of my hand. Those that are my own, my sheep. But yet Jesus does much more than that. Jesus, as the high priest, dies on the cross on behalf of sinners. It's not as if he's saying, don't worry, you have nothing to worry about, All right, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to take it easy. No, he did the hard work. He, he did the work of paying the price for the sins of his people. And you ask, well, Jesus, what have you done for me? He says, hey, I died on the cross on behalf of of my beloved people to pay the price for your sins, all of you who are trusting in Him. 
And it's not as if it's done there. Jesus was raised from the dead. He sits at God's right hand. And His work continues. We're told, Hebrews 7.25, that He always lives to intercede on behalf of His, behalf of his people. He's, he's at God's right hand interceding for you. So that when you pray, that our Lord Jesus is at God's right hand. We, we need no other intercessor. We need no other mediator. There's only one. And if Jesus, who's the mediator and the intercessor, if He's not good enough, no one ever will be. So you can add all these other people in heaven. doesn't matter. We have Jesus. That's all we need. That's all God has given us. And then we think about Jesus' words to Peter. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded per- permission to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Think about this prayer. Think about the assurance that, that Peter should have had. Peter, obviously, he, he was in some completely different space. What? Jesus, I would die for you. What are you talking about? I, I'm not going to fall away. He didn't know himself. But these words that Jesus gave, hey, Satan has asked permission to sift you. And you think about the words that Peter would have heard, no, no, Jesus said he was, he was praying for me, that my faith wouldn't fail. This gives him assurance, hey, I can come back to Jesus, I failed, I denied him. Exactly as he did, not once, three times. But you can come back, because Jesus has prayed for you, that your faith wouldn't fail. And so also, Jesus prays on behalf of us, his people, that however difficult life is, however challenging things are, that God is one who is at work in your life, praying on your behalf. There's also the Father's role in your perseverance. Here in verse 29, my my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. We covered that. That the Father has given Jesus the elect. He's given them as a gift. That these belong to you. He's checked them in. And that Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, that he was, he was providing that inventory. All that you have given me, I have kept secure, but this one, Judas, who was the son of perdition. So he's saying, you've checked him into me, I've checked him back to you. This is accountability. What ought to happen, right? Father, son, accountability, right? Even Jesus had to answer for those under his care. Accountability is a good thing. And the Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's as if you have Jesus holding his sheep. No one's able to snatch them out of my hand. If that's not enough, he said, hey, my Father who is greater than all, he's greater than everyone. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you persuaded here that Jesus is saying that all of you who are in Christ cannot be lost? Not only that you will not be lost, but you cannot be lost. And there's also the role of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is given in adoption as a pledge of your inheritance. But that here also, He is given as a seal. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Meaning that there will come a day when... You will be redeemed. 
that you will be brought into the kingdom, brought into the heavenly kingdom, and you're sealed for that day, all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Now you ask, how might this be an encouragement to God's people? This should give you greater confidence in the sovereign power of God's goodness. That when God says that He saves to the uttermost, that He means it. He's not going to lose any one of you who are in Christ. Again, we started by saying in the beginning, the saints who are in heaven are only happier and holier. They're no more secure than the saints who are in this life struggling through the daily battles. Your security is in Jesus Christ, not in yourself. Your security is in Jesus Christ. Here also, it's a reminder to us that there are many things in life that start to break down and start to fail. Youth is fleeting. Health passes. We've seen that so often here. How often? And even in our circles of family members, of members within the church, we see health that fails. Loved ones, surprisingly, health failing. But you know what? Even though that and wealth, wealth can vaporize. We're told that wealth can sprout wings and fly away. But you realize that wealth can go, health can go, vigor can go. But God's grace indeed can be that constant. It can even be growing when those other things are parting. So you ask, what can you hold on to in this life? Despite the material blessings, despite the blessings of health and of vigor, those can go. But God's grace to us can continue abundantly. And so we ought to understand that you are called to persevere, that you might do so for God's glory. That after all of it, you and I aren't saying, wow, I sure am faithful. No, after all of it, you and I would be saying, God, you indeed are faithful. You're faithful to your promises. That you showed me as weak. That my independence I thought I had, I don't have. What I have is dependence, dependence upon you. And that after all of it, we see through every chapter of our lives, God, you proved yourself faithful to me time and time again. May I trust in your promises more. May I see see a greater need to believe your word. How it's the world that should come into question and that God's word must never. May you trust in him all the more even as He calls you to persevere in this life, trusting that He will bring you to the life to come. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank You, Father, for...